as we continue this series on 2020 vision, let's not forget the greatest vision we can get is a vision for the cross. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, as you're turning there, uh, let me reiterate what uh, Pastor Ben said. A big welcome to our guests. And uh, this morning, I've met guests from all over the place, as, as far away as Ohio and, uh, and around the state of Georgia. So glad to have you with us here in worship at Trinity this morning. And uh, Let's look at the Word of God together. I'm going to begin reading with verse 4. We'll look at verses 4 through 6, but then we'll uh, frame this message within the larger context. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a, a visual demonstration of what you were willing to do to set us free. Lord, I pray that over these next few weeks and even in these moments now, that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and brand it on our souls. That we would have a greater understanding of what you did to set us free. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Christian songwriter and singer by the name of Al Denson some of you that are my age can remember when he was a favorite at youth conferences and things like that. He wrote a song called Take Me to the Cross that was based on a story that he had heard of a, a little girl who had gotten lost in the city and she couldn't find her way home, but she knew, look for a police officer. And she found this police officer and been, began to explain, I got separated from my parents, I'm lost in the city, I live in the city, but I don't know my way home. And he said, do you know anything? He was looking for landmarks, anything. Do you know anything about where you live? Give me your name, that sort of thing. And she began to give her name, and she said, I know this. My parents live, there. there's a church, and that church next to our, our house has a very high steeple, and at the top of the steeple, there's a big cross. And then the little girl looked at the police officer and smiled and said, if you can get me to the cross, I can find my way home. And of course, that overwhelmed the police officer, and it led to the writing of even the song, Take Me to the Cross. If you can get me to the cross, I can find my way home. I would say this morning, there's no other way home than through the cross. Most do not hold tightly to a vision of the cross. Most believers do not understand some of the deeper doctrinal issues that surround the cross, and I would suggest that probably in our lifetime we'll never get our mind around the message of the cross, the meaning of the cross, all that is contained in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is it necessary? What's, what's the necessity and the nature of the cross? We're going to look at that this morning. For most of us, the cross is a charm. It's uh, perhaps a gold charm, a silver charm. Uh, more and more these days, it's a charm in ink on your skin, but it's a charm for many people. 
And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing for the cross to be a charm. What I am saying is that when Paul said, I will boast in the cross, he understood the meaning behind the cross. Folks from a more orthodox faith might display the cross as a crucifix. Evangelicals like us like to emphasize the fact that Jesus is no longer on the cross. Either way, we can be guilty sometimes of idolatry by worshiping the cross or expecting that the image of a cross that we have, whether we picture Christ on that cross or already departed from that cross, we can begin to use that as some kind of charm, some kind of magical symbol that we might think accomplishes something without us realizing what the cross did for our souls. So we've got to be careful of two extremes. One is idolatry of the object of the cross. The other is overlooking the message of the cross. We come to this passage, we've got to keep in mind, this is a messianic passage. Isaiah would prophesy concerning the coming. Now this, we can talk about a vision of the cross. We have the privilege this morning of looking back and seeing exactly what Jesus did on that cross. Isaiah, several hundred years before Christ, was looking forward to a cross. This had not taken place yet. But ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, ever since that day that God had to take the skins of an animal, and clothed Adam and Eve, and they saw bloodshed in the garden because of their sin. Every sacrifice that was made in the name of God was looking forward to the one sacrifice that would be the be-all, end-all sacrifice of all sacrifices. It was all looking forward to the cross of Christ. Nothing would be sufficient until the cross of Christ, and nothing else will ever do since the cross of Christ. It's only the cross that could accomplish the freedom that we needed. He kind of frames it beginning at the end of chapter 52, beginning with verse 13, behold my servant. And this is what we would call a suffering servant prophecy. Isaiah was the prophet of the suffering servant Messiah who would come. He said, behold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And that coming exaltation of Christ. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2, that he was humiliated, but yet he has been exalted and given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Just as many were astonished, verse 14 says in, in chapter 52, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he Sprinkle or atone many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. It's going to be the situation when Messiah comes, what Isaiah is saying. When, when the Messiah comes, the world, the kings of this world will say, You mean he's a king? He's royalty? He's God's anointed one? No way can he be that in this world. And so he goes on to build the case in chapter 53. Who has believed our report? Who gets this? Who can can understand this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. It's interesting that Christ was born after 400 years, silent years of the prophets. God had kind of closed the door on prophecy for a while, and then Christ comes on the scene following John the Baptist's announcements. He has no form or comeliness that we should see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. What Isaiah was prophesying concerning the coming of Christ was that it would be easy to overlook him in his first coming. The Jews were looking for this conquering king to come and overthrow all governments and take over and establish his kingdom. And Jesus had to come the first time to pay for our sins. He had to come as a suffering servant. And they would miss that. They would would overlook the vision of the cross. What's our vision of the cross this morning? Do we understand the necessity and the nature of the cross? Do we really? Or do we just know a few songs about the cross? We sing a few songs about the cross. We find inspiration in the cross, motivation from the cross, but we really don't get the message of the gospel in the cross. So I want us just to break it down into two aspects, the necessity and the nature. The necessity of the cross, why was it necessary? And the nature of the cross, what was it all about? First of all, the necessity of the cross. Why was the cross necessary? The the cross was necessary for one reason, the, the sinful condition of mankind. The sinful condition of mankind. Why did there have to be a cross? Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was, what, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He chastisements for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He, he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Everything that we could experience in this life as a result of living in a sin-fallen world. And by the way, we live in a sin-fallen world. All of that was put on Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. I realize that people think they're being intellectual. They sound very educated when they come across in their humanism to say, make a statement like this. If there is a God and he is all-knowing and he is all-powerful and he is all-loving, then why would he let bad things happen to good people? See, that's a question of ignorance. It, it, it neglects to see the fact that we live in a sin-fallen world. And that's what Isaiah is pointing out here. We live in a sin-fallen world, and that necessitates the very cross of Christ. And by the way, anything that we can experience, anything we can encounter as a result of living in a sin-fallen world and say, that's not fair, that hurts, I don't want to go through that, I don't want to experience that, all of that was poured on Jesus when he was on the cross. He experienced the hells of this world and the hell to come when he died on the cross in our place. But it was our sinful condition that necessitated that. Verse 6 explains it very clearly. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. Paul said it this way in Romans, that great dissertation on salvation and the cross. Paul said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone 
who has ever lived is a sinner by nature and by choice. We were conceived in sin from the very moment we were in, even though the psalmist can say, King David himself could say, I was fearfully and wonderfully made. God put me together in my mother's womb there as part of that imago day that is badly marred, but still there. We are God's precious creation. But David would also say, in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin. I was a sinner before I was even born into this world. You ever notice you don't have to teach kids how to sin? You don't have to say, well, I, I, let me today show you what a lie is so you'll know what not to do. And that just comes natural. They, they learn how to lie by the time they're two years old. Learn how to lie and be selfish and do both at the same time, usually with one word, mine. That's the sin nature. And every one of us has to deal with that sin nature. We're born with that. We are sinners by nature and by choice from the moment of conception. Look at verse 8 in this same chapter. When you come down to the final phrase, he says, For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. For the transgressions, that moment of crossing the line, that sin, Jesus was stricken. The Jews are included in this when he says, My people, who are my people? Remember the prophecy that was given in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. That's the my people of God. God was doing something in the Jewish people. But let's also keep in mind that his people would include so much more. By the way, John chapter 1 and verse 11 says that he came into his own and his own people received him not. But as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the children of God. And as many included Gentile and Jew, and Gentile means everybody who's not a Jew. That's most of us this morning, right? So for the transgression of my people, we have to think about passages like Psalm 24.1, which says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people, and all who dwell therein. So everybody has God as owner, not everybody has God as Father. Everybody has God as owner, not everybody has God as Savior. So when he says, the, the transgressions of my people, everyone who has ever been born is in need of a Savior. Because we have all transgressed, we have all sinned and come short of His glory. Perhaps this condition is best articulated in, in Psalm chapter 32. You don't have to turn there, but just follow me. Me, as I read this, many believe that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. He says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whom whose, whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you have forgiven the iniquity. See, he uses words like transgression and sin 
and iniquity to illustrate different aspects of it. The fact that we have crossed the line, we have transgressed, or we have sinned, we have missed the mark, we have all come short of God's glory. All of that illustrates the fact that none of us can be good enough to save ourselves. I've often illustrated it this way with young people. Suppose we were playing a basketball game, and this illustration works in here since we have basketball goals, right? Suppose we were playing a basketball game, and and, and it's just a little one-on-one time. And so Justin over here and I, we we played one-on-one before, I think. Um, We're playing a little one-on-one in basketball, right, like we did the other Friday night. Playing a little one-on-one, and uh, Justin runs down, and... uh, he shoots a layup, and he misses. And you're like, wow, you're so much faster than Pastor Robbie. You beat him down there. He was nowhere around to intimidate or block the shot or anything, and you missed a layup. How in the world did you do that? But I do get there finally long enough to pick up the rebound, and there's one second left on the clock, so I sling the ball, and I'm not quite as good a shot as that kid from Kentucky last night, but I, I, I sling the ball the length of the court and it hits the rim and goes around and around and around the rim, and then it falls out. Well, which of those two shots are most impressive? Most people would say the second shot, because we really didn't expect much out of you anyway. And when I made the shot, you're like, wow, he almost made that. He threw it the length of the court. It went around and around the rim. Too bad it came out. But the missed layup, I mean, goodness gracious, that's not impressive at all. Here's the thing. Our best efforts, our best shots at being good in life, our best shots at trying to say, okay, I'm going to be good enough so that my good actions outweigh my bad actions and I'll get to heaven one day. Our best of the best is still a zero. See, how many points was Justin's missed layup? Zero. How many points? Full court shot, round and round and round. Zero. All miss the mark. All come up short. And by the way, even our righteousness, even our good works, Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 64 and verse 6, our best works are as filthy rags. Our righteousness, our, our, what we call good works, is as filthy rags. We can't accomplish that. We need, because of our sinful condition, We need a Savior. We need someone who would die in our place, pay our price. So we have sins of commission and sins of omission. You might ask, well, what are sins of commission? What do you mean by that? Sins of commission, when you do something that you are not supposed to do, that which displeases God, that's a sin of commission. We have all experienced that. Lust and sexual sin that we should not commit Verbal sins. Anybody guilty of verbal sins? Like, yeah, every time I open my mouth. Things that we say out of anger and spite or slander or gossip, that's verbal sins. Attitudes and sinful actions. Even to say that we hate somebody. Jesus said that's like committing murder. And for those who would say, well, at least I haven't committed adultery, Jesus said if you looked on a woman to lust after you committed adultery in your heart, Sins of commission, violence. It seems like every time I turn on the news, 
another kid has been abducted. And we're like, what kind of world do we live in this day? We live in a sin-fallen world. Sins of commission. What about sins of omission? See, a lot of us listen to all the sins of commission and we feel like, well, I'm doing better than I've ever done here. Not really committing any major sins lately. What about sins of omission? Not worshiping. And I'm not talking about, oh, you skip church on a Sunday morning. I mean, not giving Jesus Christ preeminence in our life, not making him number one in our life. That's a sin of omission. Not witnessing as we ought to, not giving and being as generous as we ought. Or perhaps just the sin of those of us who might be sitting here this morning saying, well, you know what, really, I think I am doing okay. I think I'm doing pretty good. As a matter of fact, as I look at my neighbors, I look at the people around me, I think I'm doing better than most people. Well, there you go, the sin of self-righteousness. The sin of self-righteousness. Or I have no sin. I don't need Jesus. John says in his epistle, if we say we have no sin, we lie and we make him out to be a liar. Sins of commission, sins of omission necessitate a cross. Now understand how the cross deals with that condition. We need to see not only the necessity, but the nature of the cross. You know, there are those in this world, by the way, some of you are familiar with uh, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And by the way, that is an interpretation of a verse. We have had to take it out of the Hebrew language and put it into the English language. But in the Hebrew, it quite literally says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. And it could be understood as the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But it could be that the fool has said in his heart, no to God. I don't need you, God. If you do exist, if you don't exist, I don't care whether you exist or not. Atheism, humanism, or simply the apathy of saying, I'm not interested. Puts us in a situation where we need to understand our need for a Savior. The nature of the cross. What is the nature of the cross? The nature of the cross is the substitutionary atonement of Messiah. The substitutionary atonement of Messiah. What in the world are you talking about? A substitutionary atonement. That sounds like theological terms. And a lot of people today will even tell pastors, hey, with, with the congregations these days and, and, and trying to reach young people in the next generation, don't use theological terms. I think that sometimes we try to so water it down that we don't grasp what God is trying to say to us. One of the gurus in youth evangelism helped me out with his name, Pastor Ben, um, the professor from Southeastern that said that we, 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 we aren't teaching people theology anymore, but if they can grasp algebra, Alvin Reed. Yeah, Alvin Reed Dr. Alvin Reed said, you know, we, we send them to school and expect, expect them in eighth grade to learn algebra, but when they come to church we say they can't learn theology if you can learn algebra, you can learn theology, amen? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I can't learn algebra. Um, <laughs> we need to understand the theology of the atonement, substitutionary atonement. Because people are making a lot of mistakes these days. Let me give you some false views of the atonement before we get back into this text. One false view of the atonement is called the ransom paid to Satan atonement. The ransom paid to Satan atonement. When... Um, uh, Pastor Ben was going over this skit with me. I was wanting to make sure that the second part of it didn't reveal any kind of ransom paid to Satan. 
and, and it didn't, and I appreciated that. It was, it was the fact that Christ was going to pay the price. But the ransom was not paid to Satan. Who was the ransom paid to? God. Who had we violated in our sin? God. Satan himself was under condemnation. He wasn't asking Jesus to go to the cross. He wanted to do everything he could to get Jesus to bypass the cross and not go to the cross. Our sin was against God. It set us free from the grip of Satan, but the ransom wasn't paid to him because God didn't owe Satan anything. So that's one of the false doctrines today is that it was something paid to Satan. It was not. Another false teaching of the atonement was, the, the exemplary view of the atonement is that not that the atonement paid the price for our sin, but in the atonement when Jesus went to the cross, he simply showed us how much he loved us and set a model for love for us to live by. So Jesus becomes our greatest example, the greatest example of love. By the way, he does become the greatest example of love. But to say that the cross only accomplished being an example of love is to sell the cross way short of everything it was intended to represent. It's more than an example. To say that the cross was one way among many for forgiveness. When you say, well, what are you depending on for salvation, for forgiveness, to get into heaven one day for us to say, well, you know, I choose the cross. Other people deal with their sins in a different way. But always, as Oprah would say, always basically lead basically to the same God, right? Any road takes you to the same place. That doesn't make sense. Using a map, it doesn't make sense reading my Bible. All roads don't lead to the same place. There's one way. We sing that song as a kid, right? It's still true. There's one way to peace. Remember the peace sign? A few of you that are older than me remember that. One way to peace through the power of the cross His banner over me is love. Remember that? There is one way, and that's through the cross. Another false view of the atonement, really a couple more views that could go to some extremes here. Some say that the atonement is universal in application. That means that because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, that everybody's sin is atoned for whether they believe or not. The application of the atonement is only for those who receive the message of the atonement by faith and give their lives to Jesus Christ. So there's this this false doctrine of universal application of atonement. Because Christ died for the sins of the world, the atonement automatically applies to everyone. But the other extreme to that false doctrine is this extreme, well, if, if the atonement is only for those who believe, then it was limited in power. And so this idea of the limited power of the atonement, that the, there was only enough of power in the blood of Christ and his atonement for a certain few. Listen, my Bible says, whosoever will. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to And so we can get into these extremes of universal application of the atonement or limited power in the atonement. But in the blood of Jesus Christ, in his atoning sacrifice, and in his death, he died for the sins of the world. That atonement is only applied to those who receive that. 
by faith. Now, Isaiah prophesied this vision of Messiah dying our death, substitutionary atonement, meaning he died in our place, a death we deserve. Look at verse 4 again. He bore, Jesus bore our sin. Verse 5, he was wounded, he was bruised, he was chastised. By his stripes we are healed. Now, I realize today that there's a discussion about healing in the atonement. Here's what I believe about healing. Jesus, by the way, people were healed in the Old Testament. Jesus healed people when he walked on the face of this earth before he went to the cross. Jesus can heal people today. Jesus can work in your life and through you, and that's why James tells us to anoint people with oil to remind us, I believe. By the way, oil was used for two things, right? It was used for medicinal purposes, so don't buy into these philosophies that say, don't go see a doctor, just have faith. <laughs> no, go see a doctor. There's, by the way, Paul took a doctor with him. His name was Luke. It's good to have him around. Go see a doctor. Medicinal value. But oil also represented the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so we anoint with oil when we pray for healing to remind us that the power is not our power. If there's anything that would really distract us from worshiping Jesus Christ and from his blood atonement would be for the church to all of, us, uh, all of a sudden think, well, the pastor, he's the faith healer. He's the one that has the power. He's the one that, listen, if God does something, it's for his glory. It's under his sovereign hand because he can, because he's God. And we don't always understand why he chooses to work in some situations and not others. But I do know this. Abraham, great man of faith, died. Paul died. Paul prayed three times for a thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it wasn't. So physical healing isn't automatic at the moment of salvation in the atonement. It looks forward to a day that one day we'll receive a glorified body and that we won't have to worry about disease or sickness ever ever again. That's what the blood atonement is accomplishing. So what this passage is talking about here is primarily spiritual healing. How, how do you know that? It's because of the nature of the Hebrew poetry and what he is saying within the context. Never take a text out of a context. He's wounded for our transgression, spiritual. Bruised for our iniquities, spiritual healing. Chastisement for our peace was upon him, spiritual healing. By his stripes we are healed. How are we healed? We are spiritually made whole. The moment we get saved... We are justified, declared righteous, as if we had never, ever sinned. We're made a new person in him from that very moment. We receive him by faith. Look at verse 6. We said a moment ago it revealed the necessity, but I want you to see it also reveals the nature of the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one of us to our own way, but the Lord did what? He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 reminds us that he went willingly to the cross. Jesus, on his way to the cross, would make this statement, nobody can take my life from me. I choose to lay down my life. He was the perfect Lamb of God, verse 9. And he had to be that perfect Lamb. It was the interesting thing about the whole incarnation from the very beginning. And I like what Pastor Ben said. I look forward to Easter. We should celebrate that big time. Easter tells us why Christmas was necessary. Why did there have to be a God-man? Here's the problem. Only God could pay the price for our sin. Only man owed the price. God would become man, 100% God, 100% man, so that he could take our place. He could be our substitutionary atonement on Calvary's cross. 
And we see it again in verse 12 as he kind of summarizes this. Bless, I'm sorry, I'm still in Psalm 32. <laughs> in Isaiah 53 in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, and he made, trans, he made intercession for the transgressors. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul summed it up this way. The Lord made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the imputation is all about. It's that Jesus on the cross, became sin for us because our sin had to be punished. God is holy and he is just, and being holy and just, he must punish sin. God is also loving. Because he is loving, he wants to save us from that punishment, so he took the punishment. He became sin for us to take the punishment for sin. That's what love is all about. First John chapter 4 in verse 10 says, Herein is love, not that we love God, not that we wake up one day and say, you know what, I just love God for who he is. He said, that's not love. Herein is love that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That word propitiation means atoning substitute. He became the atoning sacrifice. He became sin for us and for God the Son, to say, I'll become as one of them, and I will take on all of their sin all at once. Let it be poured on me. That's what the atonement is all about. That's what the cross is all about. I've illustrated it this way before. I brought my cell phone up here to illustrate it this way, and sometimes this really helps the children to get it. And I want to ask all the children to sit up high and really pay attention to this before we close. Young people, you, you can share this with your friends, and you may have seen me do this before as I've shared my faith with others, but I want to let my, uh, my hand right here represent God, okay? This left hand represents God. And I'm going to let my right hand represent us, mankind. Okay, everybody got that? Sam, what's this? No, that's my hand. But it represents God, okay? My, my left hand represents God. My, my right hand represents us. Just pick it on you, Sam. And in the very beginning, God created us to walk in fellowship with him. And that fellowship was sweet. That fellowship was wonderful. That fellowship in the garden was awesome. But Adam sinned. Eve sinned. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I'm going to let my phone... By the way, our phones kind of represent our whole life these days, don't they? Everything's on here. I'm going to let my phone represent sin. God cannot allow sin into his presence because he's a holy and just God. All of us have sinned. We have sin in our life. All of sin that comes short of God's glory. So what God did, because he hates sin and must judge sin and must punish sin, or he wouldn't be a holy and righteous God, and because God loves us and he wants to have that relationship again with us, God became as one of us. God became man. Except he was different from the way we were born, right? He, he knew no sin. What does Isaiah 53, 6 say right here? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he went to the cross. And that's why I'm looking forward to our Good Friday service. One of my favorite statements, and, and I'm not preaching this statement this year, but, but it's one of my favorite statements. I think, uh, 
David Poston, who's the campus pastor over at ACS, you guys will hear him preach on He's going to get pretty fired up, I guarantee you, preaching on it is finished. Jesus on the cross, when he said it is finished, in, in the, the language in, in Greek, Aramaic, when, when Jesus is saying it is finished, it's business language, meaning the price has been paid in full for our sins. And he rose, after he was buried, he rose again from the grave, reminding us that he is alive and well today. It doesn't mean that we're automatically in fellowship with him and going to spend eternity in heaven. That's universal atonement. What it does mean is now you and I can invite Jesus into our life. And by the way, the relationship with God didn't begin when we get to heaven. It begins the moment we receive him by faith. And we begin to get a little bit of heaven here on earth, right? Because we were created to live in fellowship with him. And so by faith, we can now receive him into our lives, the one that paid the price for our sins. And when we do, that fellowship, that relationship is restored. And if that relationship is restored, then it will continue, not only in this life, but throughout eternity. What does that mean? It means we better quit trying to be good enough because we can't. We, we better quit relying on self and comparing ourselves to others because we all fall short. And quit giving up on hope for redemption because we fail and realize that we are saved by grace through faith in what Christ did when he took our sins to a cross and paid that price in full and said, it is finished. Would you bow your heads with me right now?